0: And to be perfectly frank, there have been times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. There may have been things said or done that were
1: not in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrine. Brothers and sisters, Stay in the boat, use your life jackets, hold on with both hands, avoid distractions. Give Brother Joseph a break. Some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. This is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. How can homosexual members of the church... First I want to change the question. There are no homosexual
2: members of the church. Questions are honored, but opposition is not.
1: I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those are going to be the ones we avoid.
3: Doubt your doubts.
4: Welcome to the Cognitive Dissidence podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance for you to be here today, for me to be with you. We are gonna to talk today about elevation emotion. Elevation emotion is the psychological mechanism, and here's what it is. Uh, you can call it elevation for short. Here's the Wikipedia uh, definition. Elevation is an emotion elicited by witnessing virtuous acts of remarkable moral goodness. It is experienced as a distinct feeling of warmth and expansion that is accompanied by appreciation and affection for the individual whose exceptional conduct is being observed. Elevation motivates those who experience it to open up to, affiliate with, and assist others. Elevation makes an individual feel lifted up and optimistic about humanity. So we've talked often in this podcast, we delve into the psychological mechanisms that religions utilize knowingly or unknowingly to help them appear as having truth and being successful and in in subtle ways, and again, intentional and unintentional, but manipulate its members into loyalty and obedience to those religious institutions. And in this podcast, we often use Mormonism as the example. Um, I I think, one, I'm uh, a Mormon, and and so it makes it uh, an easy religion to utilize because it's the language and symbols that I'm familiar with. But I also think it's helpful because I do consider Mormonism a a high-demand, fundamentalist religion, which means these mechanisms show up here. They're not as brutal as, say, in a cult like uh, Scientology uh, or a Heaven's Gate or the Jim Jones group, whereas you could see physical, literal, physical harm being done as part of the religious institution's mechanisms. Um, but with Mormonism, you have unhealthiness. You've got abuse happening, you've got harm being done to others, but it's a little more subtle but certainly much more so than the, uh, I guess, the the religions that have become more normalized, having been around longer, uh, that are out there. In Mormonism, and and I assume to some extent in all religions, uh, I'm aware of some religions having this idea, but I I would guess that on some way this shows up everywhere, which is the idea that if you participate in a religious community... And as you go to the religious service on your holy day, and as you participate in that religion's theology and sermons and service, that the idea of feeling emotional highs, feeling really good, feeling warm feelings inside, and an expansion of yourself— that most religions utilize that feeling and say, look, you felt that. Now that feeling means something, and it means something positive about us as a religious community that you're participating in. And the, the trouble is that we can give people tons of false experiences, experiences based, based on uh, inaccurate or false stories and still cause this emotion, this elevation emotion to take place within inside somebody. So again, in Mormonism, we have this idea that uh, when you feel the Holy Ghost, when you feel this member of the Godhead, you will feel a burning in your bosom, a warmth, a tingling on the arms and spines, the hair standing up, and you'll feel love and peace. And Mormonism tells you that if you are participating in Mormonism and you feel those feelings, that you can absolutely take to the bank the idea that that is a testimony of the truthfulness of this institution, this tribe that you're participating in. And what we, if we take a step back and get out of the inside of the tribe for a second, if we take off that lens and step back from the tribe and look at all the tribes across the world and just look at human beings, uh, just the human nature and human behavior of how us humans uh, act, the reality is that whenever any of us, inside Mormonism, outside Mormonism, inside Jehovah's Witnesses, outside Jehovah's Witnesses, inside scientology outside scientology inside the methodist church outside the methodist church inside islam or any one of its its branches outside inside the jewish faith outside everybody is experiencing this elevation emotion and once you grasp that everybody feels it all religions are utilizing it to their benefit and some religions Completely hijack this normal psychological mechanism, and they redefine it as a, a gift found pr- uh, predominantly, if not only, with inside that tribe. And so the the there's two things that need to happen today in this podcast. And one is that you grasp that everybody is feeling this elevation emotion in their lives it is not unique to religion it is not unique to any of the religions that claim that it is a gift found within that tribe but more importantly the second part we need to talk about is how religious institutions misuse this and so with that the the first example i want to share is a simple one um the, the person you're about to hear is Jeffrey R. Holland. He is, the, uh, he is an apostle with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon faith. And he's going to report on the growth of the church. Here's that uh, segment.
2: We're in the midst of, of incredible growth, staggering growth in the church. It's the single biggest problem we have. It's the best problem we could have, but it's the biggest uh we we are reeling under the implications of the growth that we have in this church. Last Thursday, I've been out here this Thursday, I've been with Elder and Sister Holland and been with Elder and Sister Robbins this this week. So we I missed the temple meeting this Thursday, but a week ago Thursday we created fifteen stakes. Um, and we're doing that masa menos every every week more more or less. Uh, it might not be 15, but it's uh, the week before it was 12. Uh, sometimes it's eight or whatever, and it'll be a little uneven. But 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 the point is, I mean, we're we're talking double digit stakes every week, every week of our lives, and uh, so be it. We're creating new missions. We created some new ones that'll be in place this summer. Uh, you're going to create some new stakes in the Southwest. You're doing it already. Well, you've already done it. How, how, we've been splitting stakes around here like crazy. Uh, and, uh, and, and we'll be doing that. Missionaries, temples, everything. Everything we're doing is bigger than it's ever been done. In the history of the world. I'm not just talking about since October. I'm not just talking about since 1940.
4: Since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden. Now, we need to establish right away that whether he's lying or whether somebody just wants to make the argument that he's misinformed, the reality is that the growth is nowhere near what he is reporting. We actually have the data. The church itself gives the data, and the church tells us that it's creating about 1.6 stakes per week and about 5.5 wards per week. So no matter how you look at what he just said, and for those who are not Mormon, that has to do with kind of like a a small geographic area, a stake with several wards, which would be congregations inside it. So a stake is kind of, so so a ward is the uh, congregational level. Each ward is a congregation with, you know, 200 to 250 people attending generally, and a stake is now the next circle out, which would, which would be a leadership watching over, um, you know, six, seven, eight wards in that stake. Now, knowing that the data he says is inaccurate, he is sharing this emotional appeal of how great the growth is in the church, and mormons have been telling themselves the leadership and the lay members reassuring themselves at every turn that this work mormonism is the the fulfillment of daniel the stone cut out of the mountain without hands it shall fill the whole world and so when mormons talk about how fast the church is growing everybody feels this elevation emotion they feel this warmth inside. It's, it's a testimony of the truthfulness of the church to them. And here's Elder Holland giving false information, giving it charismatically, and building testimony in those that he's talking to. People feel it even if the data isn't true. Uh, let me give uh, another example.
1: For nearly 6,000 years... God has held you, most of you, in reserve to make your appearance in the final days before the second coming of the Lord. Every previous gospel dispensation has drifted into apostasy, but ours will not. True, there will be some individuals who will fall away. But the kingdom of God will remain intact to welcome the return of its head, even Jesus Christ. While our generation will be comparable in wickedness to the days of Noah when the Lord cleansed the earth by flood, there is a major difference this time, and that is that God has saved for the final inning some of his strongest children who will help bear off the kingdom triumphantly. And That is where you come in, you who are are here tonight, you members of these 14 great stakes. For you are the generation that must be prepared to meet your God all through the ages the prophets have looked down through the corridors of time to our day billions of the deceased and those yet to be born have their eyes on us make no mistake about it you are a marked and a choice
4: generation the voice you just heard was ezra taft benson This talk was given on March 4th, 1979, at a devotional at uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, University, BYU. So here is Ezra Taft Benson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in 1979, telling a crowd that they are a marked generation. And he goes a little further than that. He says, while our generation will be comparable in wickedness to the days of Noah when the Lord cleansed the earth by the flood, there is a major difference this time. It is that God has saved us for the final inning, some of his strongest children who will help bear off the kingdom triumphantly, and that is where you come in, for you are the generation that must be prepared to meet your God. In other words, he's, he's not saying it in a way that he can have people hold his words to the idea that he's telling them they will live to see the resurrected Jesus Christ. But make no mistake about it, he is indicating to the crowd that they are welcome to take that meaning from it. That you are a marked generation. You're the generation. This is where you come in. You are the generation that must be prepared to meet your God. The trouble is that Mormonism has given this message throughout its entire history. From the very beginning, it has said, Jesus is coming back and you are the chosen generation. And every time it happens, the members of the church who are in that crowd go, Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm special. Wow. I felt really good about that. He said that we're going to live to see Jesus and I felt a lot of warmth here in my chest and my hair stood up. I felt really good about that. I, he's a prophet, seer, and revelator. I know he was bearing true testimony. And so the members of the church feel really special because they're the chosen generation. They're the ones reserved for the last days. They're the ones, not anybody before them, them. They're the ones who have to prepare to actually meet God. God. And what it causes is elevation emotion. And so these people have a testimony of something. Here's the trouble. Let me give you another soundbite of somebody saying the exact same thing much, much later.
5: Would you like to help gather Israel during these precious latter days? Would you, who are the elect, be willing to help find the elect who have not heard the message of the restored gospel? Would you like to be among those swift messengers of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke? Now, participating in the gathering of Israel will require some sacrifice on your part. It may even require some changes in your life. It will definitely take some of your time and energy and your God-given talents. Are you interested? Just think of the excitement and urgency of it all. Every prophet commencing with Adam has seen our day, and every prophet has talked about our day when Israel would be gathered and the world would be prepared for the Second Coming of the Savior. Think of it. Of all the people who have ever lived on planet Earth, we are the ones who get to participate in this final great gathering event. How exciting is that? Our Heavenly Father has reserved many of His most noble spirits, perhaps, I might say, His finest team, for this final phase. Those noble spirits, those finest players, those heroes are you. My beloved younger brothers and sisters, you are among the best the Lord has ever sent to this world. You have the capacity to be smarter and wiser and have more impact on the world than any previous
4: generation. So with that, there's two things going on here. Uh, One is that When you tell every generation how special they are, that they're the chosen generation, the reality is that no one's the chosen. You get it? When everyone's the chosen generation, no one is the chosen generation. And in Mormonism, every single uh, president of the church who we sustain and who calls himself a prophet, seer, and revelator, he tells every youth at some point during his leadership in the church that those youth he's talking to are the chosen generation to prepare the way for the second coming of the Lord. The second idea is that if you're in this crowd and you're hearing your religious leader and who you believe to be the leader of the one true church of which you are a part of, when he tells you that, You feel all warm and fuzzy inside. You feel elevation emotion. And we are taught within Mormonism and many religious adherents, many members of many churches are taught. When they feel that warm, fuzzy feeling, they can interpret that fuzzy feeling as a testimony that their religious system is true. So, for instance, going back to Mormonism, in their scriptural canon, in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 9, verses 7 through 8, it says, Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you, when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it be right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel it is right. Outside of the scriptural canon, though, within Mormonism, there are tons of stories found in church magazines, in the scriptural stories, in class lessons about feeling the Holy Ghost. For example, in the church's Preach My Gospel manual, so within Mormonism, Mormonism is a faith that sends out its young members ages 19, actually now 18 to say 25, somewhere in that range. A lot of the young members of the church will be sent on missions. They'll go to a foreign place and uh, go door to door and and work to set up appointments with people to teach them the the, uh, Mormon uh, plan of salvation. And as they're teaching, they're given instruction through a book called Preach My Gospel. And in Preach My Gospel, uh, here's what it says. Elder M. Russell Ballard, he's a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, spoke of the power of the Spirit. True conversion comes through the power of the Spirit. When the Spirit touches the hearts, hearts are changed. When individuals feel the Spirit working with them, or when they see the evidence of the Lord's love and mercy in their lives, they are edified. Edified and strengthened spiritually and their faith in him increases. These experiences with the spirit follow naturally when a person is willing to experiment upon the word. This is how we come to feel the gospel is true. So there's this idea um, that people feel impressed to change. They feel uh, something in their heart. We often talk about this burning of the bosom or a warm, peaceful feeling inside. And LDS leader M. Russell Ballard says this is how we can know and feel that the gospel is true. Here's the trouble, which is that Jonathan Haidt, or Haidt, uh is the uh, prominent scholar on elevation emotion. And he's not a Mormon. He's not uh, a, a religionist per se. He comes from a scientific background and deals with these issues on a scientific level. He says, he talks about these studies they did. In both studies, we found that participants in the elevation conditions reported different patterns of physical feelings and motivations when compared to participants in the control conditions. Elevated participants were more likely to report physical feelings in their chest, especially warm, pleasant, or tingly feelings and they were more likely to report wanting to help others become better people themselves and affiliate with others. In both studies, reported feelings of happiness energized people to engage in private or self-interested pursuits while feelings of elevation seemed to open people up and turn their attention toward other people. Did you hear that? The, the, Understanding is that outside of Mormonism, outside of Methodism, outside of Buddhism, outside of Islam, outside of any religion, there is a uh, scientific understanding that when our bodies and our minds hear good news, uh, somebody being rescued, somebody giving a motivational talk, somebody saying something heroic or challenges us to, to be good and shares a heartfelt story to get the point across. We are going to, our minds and our bodies are going to have two main things happen, which is that we're going to feel this warm, tingly, happy feeling inside. And our minds then are then drawn to want to do something about it, to be better, to serve someone else, to become more than what we are. And then religions come in and they co opt this psychological mechanism and they say, See, that happened. That's a testimony that our church is true. So you should get baptized and you should stay involved and you shouldn't have any doubts and you shouldn't worry about losing your faith. Like, just keep doing these things, keep having these feelings, and you can know you're on the right track. Now, knowing that let me play a few sound bites a couple from mormonism and maybe a few from outside of mormonism and what i want you to do is ask yourself like as you're listening does the speaker is he is he getting you excited is he talking about something that's going to cause elevation emotion in which that you can begin to place testimony in what this person is saying so here's a sound bite from elder jeffrey r holland Um, elder Holland is uh, a member of the quorum of the 12 apostles within the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day saints. He is known as being the most charismatic among the leadership. He is the one who gives the best talks. If we're talking about charisma being involved, notice the, um, language mechanisms that he uses when he poses several doubles, Um, When he says it's this or this, or this or this, or this or this, those mechanisms are intentional. They they create something within us when we hear those, whether it's poems or stories or a motivational speaker. Um, But also notice the way in which he comes across uh, telling his or, or giving his talk in a way that creates Elevation Emotion. Here's Jeffrey R. Holland. Uh, Roll the tape.
2: As one of a thousand elements of my own testimony of the divinity of the Book of Mormon, I submit this as yet one more evidence of its truthfulness. In this, their greatest, and last hour of need, I ask you, would these men blaspheme before God? By continuing to fix their lives, their honor, and their own search for eternal salvation on a book and by implication a church and a ministry they had fictitiously created out of whole cloth, never mind that their wives are about to be widows and their children fatherless, never mind that their little band of followers will yet be houseless, homeless, and friendless and that their children will leave footprints of blood across frozen rivers and an untamed prairie floor. Never mind that legions will die and other legions live, declaring in the four quarters of this earth that they know the Book of Mormon and the Church which it espouses it to be true. Disregard all of that and tell me whether in this hour of death These two men would enter the presence of their eternal judge, quoting from and finding solace in a book which, if not the very Word of God, would brand them as imposters and charlatans until the end of time. They would not do that. They were willing to die rather than deny the divine origin and the eternal truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. For 179 years this book has been examined and attacked, denied and deconstructed, targeted and torn apart, like perhaps no other book in modern religious history, perhaps like no other book in any religious history, and still it stands. Failed theories about its origins have been born, parroted, and died from Ethan Smith to Solomon Spaulding to deranged paranoid to cunning genius. None of these frankly pathetic answers for this book has ever withstood examination because there is no other answer than the one Joseph gave as its young unlearned translator.
4: I remembered hearing that talk for the first time and I was in the middle of a faith crisis and that talk like put me back into a place of belief, a solid belief in the church for probably another three, four months. Uh, It was quite interesting how that talk did exactly what it was designed to do, which was to create elevation emotion and to have the listener uh, make the connection that that elevation emotion meant that the church was true. This next soundbite is from Thomas S. Monson, soon after he became president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as the prophet. Uh, The church, whenever it has a new prophet, it wants to help its members become positively familiar with that leader's life. And so this video which was titled On the Lord's errand came out. And I mean I mean no disrespect here. I I want to be crystal clear with this. This story is about a young girl who has cancer and she she wants a blessing from a church leader and she gets one, and unfortunately, she still passes away she, from her cancer. Um, but what I want to pay attention to, again, the the idea of taking care of sick children and seeing after them is beautiful, and we should all be about that business. So recognizing that in no way am I trying to take away from what President Monson, Thomas S. Monson, is doing to take care of this young girl and give her this positive experience. I also want to uh, draw a connection away from the actual storyline and just say, like, watch how they use music. Watch how the speakers, the music is situated to the tone of the voice or the uh, speech patterns of the person talking. Uh, notice the way in which the story is presented in order to cause within you elevation emotion. And so here's that audio uh, telling the story of Thomas S. Monson. Uh, Roll the tape.
0: During his years as a member of the Twelve, Elder Monson made weekly visits to the stakes of the church. These assignments were always made by the president of the Twelve, announced them at the conclusion of their weekly temple meeting. I like this approach, Elder Monson said, for I could then feel that the assignments I received came from inspiration. Such was the case in Shreveport, Louisiana, where he experienced one of the most sacred events of his life. The weekend of August 24, 1974, Elder Monson had been assigned to El Paso, Texas. Several days prior, President Ezra Taft Benson called Elder Monson to his office. He asked if he would mind being assigned elsewhere. Then President Benson said, Brother Monson, I feel impressed to have you visit the Shreveport, Louisiana stake. On the evening of Friday, August 23rd, Elder Monson arrived in Shreveport. The next day was filled with meetings at the stake center. During a break, state president Charles Cagle apologetically asked if Elder Monson would have time to give a blessing to a 10-year-old girl afflicted with cancer. Her name was Crystal Methvin. Elder Monson asked if she would be at the conference or if she were in a Shreveport hospital. President Cagle barely whispered that Crystal was confined to her home some 80 miles from Shreveport. Elder Monson examined the schedule, even his return flight. There was simply no time. An alternative plan was made to remember the young girl in the public prayers at stake conference. On that basis, the schedule of meetings resumed.
6: When we were informed that Elder Monson could not come, we were deeply disappointed. When the tumor had spread to the lungs and the brain, We had decided that we wanted to take Crystal to Salt Lake and have her given a blessing by a general authority. We looked at a picture of the general authorities, and we looked at a picture of Elder Thomas S. Monson, and we showed Crystal this picture. And she looked at it, and she said, he looks like a very nice man i think he's the right one we never made that flight to salt lake due to her health situation we knew that she could not make the flight we informed her that it wouldn't wasn't going to happen her response was well if i can't go to elder monson then surely he can come to me when we learned Elder Monson was going to come to our state conference. We were elated because we thought our prayers were answered. But when we heard that he couldn't make the trip on further south to see us and then give Crystal a blessing, we didn't know what to think. But we did the only thing that we knew to do, and that was to place it in the hands of the Lord. And so As a family, we knelt in prayer. As the Methvin
0: family prayed, the clock in the stake center showed 7.45 p.m. Elder Monson was sorting his notes, preparing to step to the pulpit during a leadership meeting, when he heard a voice speak to his spirit. The message was brief. Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Elder Monson made a decision. The meeting schedule was changed. He turned to Bishop James Sarah and asked him to leave the meeting and advise the Methvens.
6: And while we were praying, the phone rang, and Bishop Sarah, a bishop in one of the wards in Shreveport, informed us that Elder Monson would be in our home the next morning and that he asked us if we would fast with
7: him and
6: he would be there to give crystal the blessing
7: i've been in hallowed places even holy houses but never have i felt more strongly the presence of the lord than in the method hall crystal looked so tiny lying peacefully on such a large bed i gazed down on a child who was too ill to rise, almost too weak to speak. So strong was the spirit that I fell to my knees, took her hand in mine, and said simply, Crystal, I'm here. She whispered, Brother Monson, I just knew you would come. I looked around the room. No one was standing, each was on bended knee a blessing was given a faint smile crossed Crystal's face her whispered thank you provided an appropriate benediction quietly we each filed from the room four days later as Crystal's name was remembered in the prayer circle of the first presidency and council of the twelve the pure spirit our crystal meth in, left his diseased, ravaged body and entered the paradise of God.
4: I want to finish with one last one. This one is outside Mormonism, and this one just has to do with Jesus himself. And uh, the idea here is that there's a young black man, I believe his name is Joseph Solomon. Uh, He's standing up and he is sharing a poem. This is something he has written out. Uh, notice the delivery. It's beautiful. He does a really incredible job. This is a a talk that I share often with people as they're having doubts about their religious system in order to slow them down and to give them time to process things. Uh, I think this is a gorgeous video and it has nothing to do with the truth or untruth of Jesus, but rather to notice the delivery, notice the charisma, notice the Uh, The points of delivery when the substance of the talk quickly changes and shifts on certain points. And pick up that this talk is deeply designed to cause elevation emotion. Here it is. I remember
3: my little niece ran up to me and told me, we learned about Jesus today. And I could tell by her smile she was so excited to learn about this man that she did not quite know yet, but she knew without a doubt for it to be true because after all, mommy said so. And that was the first time in my life that I looked into the eyes of a child and envied them because she had no idea of what it feels like to doubt. What it feels like to have your entire belief system overload with skepticism. To never know the day that you would finally be able to live beyond the shadow of a doubt. I've lived in its darkness for so long. It, It seems like I have all the right questions. But never enough answers. And my faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of my palms. God, every night I lay my head down to sleep. The city of my mind is attacked by a legion of questions. Threatening the living rooms of my sanity and holding them hostage. Can you help me? Last year, my grandmother laid in a hospital bed like a bus stop waiting for God to come pick her up. I had never seen such pain and such confidence living in the same eyes when she told me, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know who I belong to. And I was so happy for her. And something inside of me wished that somehow before she passed away, she could pass down her confidence in God to me like an old family picture. I remember sitting in the back row of a cold sanctuary, crying because I desperately wanted what the preacher was saying to be true, but my doubts were preaching a sermon of their own, and the streams of my tears turned into oceans of frustration. I remember. Sitting in a college classroom, and the only thing being tested is my faith in God. The only thing passing is my hope. Me, in a backpack full of fear, and nowhere to go. No one to help me unpack. I sleep. I sleep, but I never rest. These lines around my eyes are not wrinkles, they are maps. Let's show you the winding roads that lead to my pain. I'm tired, I'm tired, and I'm longing for the day that I can place my fingers in his nail-pierced hands because honestly, I've considered quitting, but where will I go, back? There's no home for the living in the land of the dead, so I keep pressing forward. Today I have faith, but I can't make any promises about tomorrow. I'm surprised I've held on this long. God, just make me feel like I'm not crazy. God, let me know that I'm not just making friends with these walls. When I pray, I'm not questioning you. I've just got questions. Don't leave me here. Don't Don't leave me. My child, my child, when it seems like you have all the right questions, but never enough answers, and your faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of your palms, I told you. Faith the size of mustard seeds can rearrange whole landscapes and turn mountains into open highways. Faith comes by my word, so maybe you've cuffed your ears. My child, don't be childish. But consider the child whose faith has not quite learned the definition of impossible. Have your questions. I'm not telling you to have a blind faith. I'm telling you to consider the blind men who had faith and believed my words before they were even able to see me. Consider the birds that eat from my hand and do not fall from the sky without my consent. So how much more will I love the ones that I died for? Before you doubt me, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts, and you will see they are just as empty as the tomb that i walked from. (laughs) Truth is, truth is you know I'm here. You know my truth, and you're scared. Scared of what that means. Scared of what that should cost you that one day they will all laugh at you, laugh you right out of their classrooms and scorn you out of their courtrooms. But my love serves as an eviction notice to anxiety. When they cast stones, my love casts out fear. I am the author and finisher of your faith. I've never started a work that I will not finish. I am the one... I am the one who will give you courage to stare death in the face and say how dare you try to scare me I know who I belong to and when it feels like you are drowning When it feels like you are drowning in a sea of your questions just know I'm there I'm there like when I drowned in the Red Sea of my blood for you and these hands that took holes will hold you. And when I told you that I would love you forever, I meant it. Don't you see these rings in my hands? See, we are married. For better or for worse, through sickness and in health, through faith and through questions, till death brings us closer, you are mine. You are mine, and I am yours, I promise.
4: Wow. As you've listened to these pieces of audio, it's not a matter of whether... um, For example, in the Thomas S. Monson story, if the story actually happened, it's not a matter of whether in the Jeffrey R. Holland story, if some of those events are historically true, it's not a matter of whether Jesus is real or isn't, but rather it's that every religion uses these kinds of stories, placing in music at times, having a charismatic speaker. And... The idea that by doing those things and creating this elevation emotion within someone, that you're able to convey that my, what I'm telling you right now, you can have a spiritual testimony that such is true. And that may be possible. The trouble is that every religion does it. And within every religion, if elevation emotion means that church is true, then every church is true. Every religious authority is the is the real authority who speaks to God. And and hence, you can recognize, like, this is only an emotion. It only tells us so much. And it can't give us the absolute truth of such a thing as which religion is true. But that's the way religions use it. Um, I want to finish up with just a few little thoughts from uh, Jonathan Haidt. Um, he talks about this previously unstudied emotion of elevation. Uh, It appears to be the opposite of social disgust. It is triggered by witnessing or hearing acts of human moral beauty or virtue. Elevation involves a warm or glowing feeling in the chest, and it makes people want to become morally better themselves. Because elevation increases one's desire to affiliate with and help others. It provides a clear illustration of the idea of broaden and build model that was uh, initiated by Fredrickson in the year 2000 uh, of positive uh, emotions. And what he means is that when we hear, uh, when we hear or we witness acts of human moral beauty or virtue, we then feel this really, positive emotion within ourselves, which broadens us to be able to hold space for that goodness. And then we want to build upon it and do something better ourselves. And so it, it certainly is an important emotion within human beings as it drives us to make the world better and to look out for each other instead of looking out for ourselves and when we look out for each other, this world does become a better place. But to recognize that religions have uh, co-opted this natural feeling and made it into something that bears testimony of them, when the reality is that all of us feel elevation emotion, that warm feeling inside, that, that feeling that, that something good is here and that we want to be better ourselves. And so rather than letting religions hijack that, can we step back and just see that this is a evolutionary mechanism, a feeling within us that drives human beings to not be selfish, but to be selfless and to love and care for each other. And once we understand that this emotion is felt by all human beings across the world, regardless of religion, ethnicity, gender, Uh, None of those things matter. Then we can begin to sense the importance of this and not have it, uh, again, be hijacked by anyone and used to define something in a way that doesn't really hold up, but rather to recognize that there is some deep, important value in Elevation of and what it means. This has been the Cognitive Dissidence Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Reel. And to be perfectly frank,
0: there have been times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. There may have been things said or done that were not in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrine.
1: Brothers and sisters... Stay in the boat, use your life jackets, hold on with both hands, avoid distractions. Give Brother Joseph a break. Some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. This is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. How can homosexual members of the church, first I want to change the question, there are no homosexual
2: members of the church. Questions are honored, but opposition is not.
1: I think we'd also have to be honest, there may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those are I think, be the ones we
3: avoid. Doubt your doubts.